It is good to be with you today. I appreciate this opportunity to to worship with you and to uh, share God's word with you. This morning, our passage is from Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we will be reading verses 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Let us give attention to God's word. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince? And judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he had been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come now to the uh, proclamation of your word, we pray for that work of your spirit, your, your spirit working in me that I might speak accurately and clearly and engagingly of your work of salvation and your spirit that you may give the hearers ears to hear and hearts uh, to take hold of your truth and to rest in it and to follow it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Have you ever found yourselves in a position uh, where you take on a responsibility or an action, and after you have you are finished and things didn't quite go as you planned, you might have felt something like this: you were not quite ready for prime time. I can well remember one such event in my own ministry early on. I was newly out of seminary, an assistant pastor in a church, and one of my early responsibilities was the teaching at Wednesday night prayer meeting. And one week, I was teaching on a passage from the Gospel of Matthew. And I had done my preparation, but at one point, a, a person in the congregation, in the, in the room, uh, raised their hand and, and I was going to say, asked a question, but it wasn't so much asking a question as sort of challenging my take on a certain passage out of that text. Well, I explained to him I, I didn't think his understanding of the passage uh, was accurate or was correct. And I gave him ample information to support my position. Now, I never understood why he didn't just simply accept what I said, but he didn't, he didn't agree. And so we started the back and forth seeking to persuade each other. This went on for a few minutes. Well, more accurately, it went on for many minutes, way too many minutes. Now, it was never heated or testy, but there were a whole lot of people that were there that evening who lost interest very quickly. And there was no resolution. Now, what I'm going to say now, you might say, well, didn't you ever learn your lesson? But just let me finish. I can assure you, 40-plus years later, that I was right. (laughs) On the biblical theological issue raised by the text in the Gospel of Matthew, I still believe, honestly, that I was right. It was no, it was not a small or insignificant point, but it really is, was a rather crucial to the understand, proper understanding, I think, of the Gospel of Matthew and much of the New Testament. And yet, for all practical purposes, I was wrong. I had completely lost the group that night. I knew I had handled it badly. It was a rookie mistake. I may have graduated from seminary, but I was not quite ready for prime time. My discussion slash debate with Harold Snyder was an important lesson in my learning to be a pastor, leader of God that God had called me to be. In verses 11 to 23 of Exodus chapter 2, we find Moses caught up in three significant encounters which become an important part of his leadership training. 
Now, before we look at these, I think it's important just to set the context a bit. If you were reading the whole chapter of uh, chapter 2, you would find in the first 10 verses, Moses born, Moses found by Pharaoh's daughter floating in the Nile River, Moses' mother becoming the nursemaid, probably for four or five years. And when you come to verse 11, we find this encounter with the Egyptian maltreating uh, an Israeli slave. And Moses is 40 years old. Now, our text doesn't tell us that. You might have said, I didn't hear that. Oh, wow. No, our text doesn't tell us that. But thanks for the rest of Scripture. In Acts chapter 7, uh, basically verses 20 and following, we find Stephen, the first deacon, who has been called in front of the Sanhedrin to give uh, justification for what he has been preaching. And Stephen waxes eloquent. And he takes a significant amount of time to explain about Moses. And he tells us that when Moses killed the slave, he was 40 years old. And he tells us that when Moses uh, uh, received his call to burning bush, he was 80 years old. And if you follow uh, the rest of Scripture in in Deuteronomy, you find out that Moses died at 120 years old. So here's the point. Moses' life is, is, in a sense, divided up into three segments, 40 years each. Moses was a child, as we we gather rather early in, in the reading of Exodus. He was a child who was born to lead his people out of Egypt. But it's not until he's 80 years old that God actually calls him to begin his ministry. And Moses is finally finished his calling 80, 40 years after that. And so here's what we read uh, in our passage in verse 11, uh, about this not yet ready for primetime player. We are told in verse 11 that when Moses had grown, he went out to see his people. And our text, again, doesn't explain to us what that means exactly when he had grown. And we are rather thankful to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, 23, when he says Moses was 40 years old when he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. And so Moses is not a mature mature man, uh, just in age alone. We realize that he's had a, a unique life experience as a result of growing up in Pharaoh's palace. He had received the best of educations, the best that the world at that time probably had to offer. He lived in an environment where it was expected that in some way he would be a leader of people. You could almost say that he had finished his PhD in civic affairs. But apparently, now he was at the point of finding himself finding for himself who he really was. 
And so in verse 11, we find Moses in, in what has to be an uncomfortable uh, position, an uncomfortable situation. Almost all his life has been lived within the confines of Egyptian palace living, raised as an Egyptian. But at the same time, somehow, he is aware of his own racial identity. One day, Moses goes out to where his people were, and he saw them in hard labor. So you could say, Moses is a Jew. But in another way, you could say, he's not really a Jew. As he watched, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, a couple things I want us to notice about this phrase, this statement here, and then a few that follow it. One, we might easily jump to the conclusion that the Egyptian was a slave master, and he may have been. And just watching some of the Jewish slaves working. But some have noted that the text does not say that. It simply describes him as an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Another thing that is often asserted from these words is that Moses intended to kill the Egyptian. Again, this is not so clear. This text could legitimately be translated, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one to intervene, he struck down the Egyptian. This phrase translated from the Hebrew, seeing no one, is found in one other place in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 16. And there the Lord is speaking. And he says, he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. So that's the same phrase at the end. There was no one and so he, no one to intercede. Now, in that way, you can, you can imagine Moses, seeing no one to take charge, takes charge. Again, our text says he struck down the Egyptian. But the interesting thing is that the verb that is used in verse 11 for the Egyptian beating the Hebrew is the exact same verb we find in verse 12. He struck down the Egyptian. The idea being, yes, it was a hard blow, commensurate with the blows the Egyptian was inflicting on the Israelites. But it was not necessarily a blow wielded intentionally to kill. But of course he did kill. And he did seek to hide that killing by burying the Egyptian in the sand. And so, what is the point? I think the point is that Moses 
is not yet ready for prime time leadership. Moses demonstrates some important qualities for Israel's leader. He has the courage and desire to deliver his oppressed people. He had a certain passion necessary for leadership. But clearly he was not measured enough to lead his people from this brutal culture. His courage and passion have not yet been molded for leadership in the service of the Lord. <laughs> kind of like a young man right out of seminary, I know you. For Moses, a number of things were in place. But nevertheless, he was lacking experience in an important way. In verses 13 and 14, we move on to the next scene, which is the next day. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. If in the previous conflict we saw Moses' instincts to protect the oppressed as proper, but his uncontrolled response a problem, I think this, see, see, <clears throat> I think this scene reveals a credibility gap. The Hebrews had no reason to accept his authority as one of them. He dressed and acted the part of an Egyptian prince. Just because of who he was, he expected cooperation. It was not to be. Moses steps in to mediate this altercation, challenging the aggressor as to why he is hitting his Jewish brother and the response makes clear these men do not see Moses in any leadership that they would follow. Question one, who made you our judge? Where do you get your authority to, to rule between us? From Pharaoh? Why should we pay any attention to you? Question two, what are you going to do the same thing you did to the Egyptian? Are we going to follow you simply because we know we must, we may die if we don't? Can't you just hear it? Moses completely lacks any credibility with these men. There's no way they are going to follow his lead. Again, I would say kind of like a 27 year old, uh, seminary grad in his first month in church ministry, no real credibility. But now a certain terror arises in Moses because the word must be out. He, Moses has alienated all sides. His own people have no reason 
to respect or to trust him. And the Egyptians have seen what Moses' true allegiances are. Pharaoh has heard, and he is out to kill Moses. And Moses flees. And so now the not-quite-ready-for-prime-time leader goes on the run, goes on the lamb. And we come to our third encounter then. Uh, Moses flees to Midian, which is in the Sinai Peninsula, in the general region of Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb, of course, is the mountain that in Exodus chapter, or chapter 19, I was going to say 20, but in chapter 19, is called Mount Sinai. We find him resting at one of the communal wells, which the nomadic uh, tribes shared. Matters at the well got ugly. Now, let's be fair, not due to anything that Moses had done. But we read in verses 15 to 17, But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water water their, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Here we are introduced to a new set of characters. Uh, This priest of Midian, which we learn in a a verse or two later, name is Ruah. Uh, Apparently he was blessed with seven daughters, but no sons. And so he finds his his girls uh, tending the flocks and bringing the flock of sheep to the community well uh, to water them. This is a typical scene in the Mideast. It's not like the far west in, in America with cattle and stuff and people tried to protect their water rights. Uh, in the desert, water was a scarce resource. So there was a well, anyone in the region would use it, and that's what has happened here. <clears throat> At the well, there's a trough that's built around it. Uh, shepherds, in this case the, the daughters who are doing the shepherding, bring the sheep, draw the water, pour it into the troughs, and they're getting ready to uh, water their sheep when another group of shepherds came along. Undoubtedly, men, bullies, they drive away the sheep and the girls, and Moses is sitting there. Uh, and uh, Moses' sense of justice and fairness is aroused once again. And so he steps into this altercation. Our text says he saves them, speaking of uh, Ruel's daughter. Uh, We might just sort of pass over that statement. You know, he he delivered them from the bullies that were there. But I think it's it's a significant word that he uses. uh, The word for rescue here is the word yasha in Hebrew. And, of course, you all know what that means, right? A few of you might. The meaning is he saved. It is the root word for the name of Joshua. And you know what Joshua is called in the Hebrew? Yeshua. And you know that when you come to the New Testament in the Greek and it translates Yeshua, 
into Jesus. And of course, there's the scene uh, within the, in the birth narratives when the angel tells Joseph to name the baby boy to be born. Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And I think in this text, this is the first little small sense of a, of a um, what's going on in this world that, jo- that Moses is going to be a part of. Moses has done a little thing here helping these girls. But he is going to be, in a sense, a picture of a savior. He saves, in one sense, Israel from bondage. But we know it is it is just a picture of what God's doing that eventually points forward to Jesus, who, who initiates the great exodus out of slavery and bondage by paying for our sins on the cross. Moses here is a, a savior of the girls. He drives off the shepherds and goes on to water their flocks for them, apparently allowing them to get home earlier than usual that afternoon. When they came home to their father rule, we find this in verses 18 to 20, he said, rule says this, he said, how is it that you have come home so early today? They said an Egyptian delivered us out of the land of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Of course, there's a certain sad irony to this statement, though, to this description. Moses' attempt to help his fellow Israelites had been rebuffed, rejected, an unmitigated failure. Now here in a foreign land, Moses' efforts to give aid are appreciated and rewarded. And when the girls tell their story to their father, you can hear the father's annoyance with their response regarding their rescuer. I mean, Mideast hospitality demanded that they should have brought him home with them. And so the father sends the girls back to gather up Moses, to bring him and to invite him to eat with them. And so Moses is taken in. He is welcomed with open arms by the Midianites. He's accepted into Rule's family. He marries one of his daughters named Zipporah, and he begins a family with her. Every indication is that he has found a new home, a new community, and has every intention of settling down there. He is a man in exile from his own, from his home country, from the people of his birth. Moses is an alien, as are his countrymen in Egypt. He is finally experiencing their plight. And so appropriately, he names 
his son Gershom, signifier, signifying he is a foreigner in a foreign land. His son is a constant reminder of his banishment. But it's more than that. We find here for the first time a theme that will be played over and over again in Scripture. It is this idea that God's people are never finally home, never finally at rest, as long as we live in this world, which is under the dominion of the evil one. And this is as true today as it was for Israel of old. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds the followers of Jesus Christ that our citizenship is in heaven. As the old gospel song goes, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We are pilgrims in a foreign land. We need to remember that. I was going to say we need to own it. In some ways, that's right. We need to own it. This lesson, Moses was learning about a pilgrim in a foreign land, living with the reality that our citizenship in heaven is one we desperately need. But you know what the problem is? Though our citizenship is in heaven, right now we're here on earth. There's a a real tension within that with which we have to live. You hear this tension in a little pithy saying, I can remember, I I would say my childhood, not when I was like, you know, at grammar school, but as I was growing up and even probably in seminary to some extent, sometimes you would be talking about people that, you know, in one sense, you, you felt guilty because they were always so glowing and always talking about heaven and the reward that was there. But then this little saying came up. They are, no, they are so heavenly-minded, they are no earthly good. And, and sometimes there are those who are so focused on the glory to come, they forget where they live at the moment. It evidences itself maybe in a couple different ways. In evangelism, I can remember when I was growing up, there was those that always focused on the rescuing of souls without much concern for the whole person. Or, on the other hand, uh, getting uh, so comfortable in the holy bubble that they, they avoided the unpleasantness of what is going on in our world in our nation, in our community, in our neighborhoods. It is not good to be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. But here's the tension. That cute little saying that can uh, be turned on its ear and capture another truth talking of someone else, a believer, 
But you might say they are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. If there is a tradition within the church of people so caught up living with glory in the future that they void the world around them, there certainly is also a tradition in the church of people becoming so involved in seeking to overcome the effects of the fall in people's lives and displacing the need to call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe in another way, becoming so caught up in the culture around us that people can say, you know, they go to church, but it's hard to tell any difference between them and everybody else. We are to live as pilgrims, but not disengaged pilgrims. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. With verse 22, Moses is an alien, living in a foreign land with no real expectation of what God still had for him. It's after another 40 years, or if you're in the book of Exodus, turning the next page, uh, that God meets Moses at the burning bush, calling him to go and to lead his people out of Egypt. So now, in verses 23 to the end of the chapter, we find that the scene has been set for the exodus. Israel is in bondage in Egypt, and Moses is banished to Midian. And in these verses, uh, we find everything is, is being set in motion. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help, for their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The theme of these verses, I think, is God, Israel groaned, God heard, he remembered, and he knew. Up to this point in the book of Exodus, God has been working behind the scenes. Literally, he isn't really mentioned in the first two chapters up to verse 23, 24. But he has been active. We would talk about his providence. Now we return back to the scene in Egypt, or as we might say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. The pharaoh who had tried to kill Moses is dead. That problem's taken care of. But the Israelites are still oppressed by slave drivers. Moses may have settled down, but the situation in Egypt is anything but settled. The Israelites groan and cry out to God for help, and it is here that the God of Israel enters the scene explicitly. We read there, a cry goes up to him and he hears it. And the God who 
in some people have said it was absent in the first two chapters of uh, Exodus is clearly present and explicitly so. The stage is set for a new word from the Lord. You know, it's, I thought about the, 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 these words that we find here. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and, and with Jacob. And I, I tried to think, you know, I knew coming here today, good Reformed congregation, covenantal. It's one of those words we deal with all the time. And sometimes it just kind of washes over us like things do at times. And I was thinking about that, and I, I started thinking about God's uh, working with Abraham and, and making his covenant with Abraham. And if you read through that, you realize it's not a one-time thing. It's a process. Genesis chapter 12. And then you, you keep going on, and, and there's more and more of the covenant being revealed and illustrated and talked about. But in chapter 15, there is this, what is strange and rather gruesome picture that is drawn. Uh, we, we, we see Abraham coming to God after God has once again reassured him at the beginning of the chapter. And Abraham says, well, you know, i got a problem here. I don't know how it's going to be solved. You know, Sarah and I are not getting any younger. Is Eliezer, the head of my servants, going to be my, uh, be my heir? Which would have been the, the normal way of doing things. And God says, no, no. No, we're not talking about Eliezer. We're talking about you and Sarah. And he says, go out at night and look at the stars and start counting them if you can. Your offspring will be like that. And we're told that Abraham believed God and it's credited to him for righteousness. That's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And then God goes on to, to talk about the land that he now sojourns in. He's a nomad in. And, and Abraham, you know, he, he just has one of those real moments. He says, how can I know? Do you remember the, in, I think it's in the Gospel of Mark, the man who Christ is dealing with, and, and, and he says to him, I believe, help my unbelief. That's where Moses is. How do I know this? It, you, you're blowing my mind away. And so then God says, okay, I want you to go out, and I want you to get a heifer, I want you to get a ram, and I want you to get a goat and two birds, a pigeon and a dove. And here's where it gets gruesome. He is to cut the, the big animals in half and to line them up and basically to like make an aisle that you have here with them, with the two birds at the end. They don't cut them in half, but they put one on one side and one on the other. You know, it's, it's just a bloody mess. And then God causes Abraham to go into a deep sleep and provides him with his vision. And the vision is of a... a, a, a a torch, a blazing torch, and a smoking uh, pot. And Abraham is, is seeing this in his vision, and, and these come down between the animals. Now, you might ask, what, what smoking pot? 
blazing torches. We know what that means, don't we? We just go through the book of Exodus. What led Israel through the wilderness? It was the fire at night and the cloud during the day. The, the imagery is there. And essentially what God is saying, the language of cutting a covenant is, is we find often in Scripture, God has cut a covenant. As these animals are destroyed and cut, if I do not keep the promises I've made to you, Abram, not Moses, um, may I be destroyed. He, 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 in a sense, offers up his very being if he's unfaithful. Now, of course, he's condescending to Abram. God has no problem with faithfulness. It is who he is. But he does this such graphic and gruesome to, to picture for us just how far he will go to keep his promises to you and to me and to all God's people. And of course, that's, that's a, a picture that going forward, we come to the cross of Christ and we see the Father sending the eternal Son to become human, the God-man, to the point of the cross that we might be forgiven. He bears our sin. And then on the third day, He rises again from the dead. So that we one day have that certain hope that we too will rise from the dead if our faith is in Jesus Christ. The only reason any of us can have any hope of rescue and salvation is because God has promised. And there's nothing greater than God's promise. And as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's be honest. We are pilgrims, and sometimes pilgriming is really tough. We face all kinds of difficult things, sometimes of our own making, we're flawed people, sometimes just being part of this world. And yet we know, we know that he will complete the work he's begun in us. Because he said so. And because he gave his son for us. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word, this truth that is crucial to us living our lives. We're so easily distracted, caught off guard. And so we, we pray for that continuing work of your spirit in our lives, that, that we would more and more focus our trust on the one who only can save. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.